Uh, but we're going to be back in 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we work our way through this letter, chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 1 through 13. 1 through 13. Begin reading at verse 1. This is the holy and inspired word of God. The Apostle Paul writes, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So far from God's holy word, let's pray that he might bless his word to us. Father, we pray that as we come before your word today, that we would have humble hearts to learn of you. Father, may we become aware of the context in which we are called to honor Christ in, and may we instead desire to live a godly life in him by the power of his um, new life, resurrected, never to die again. May our eyes be fixed upon him, the risen one, and may we seek his glory above all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's much easier to be gentle when circumstances are calm and peaceful. As I was thinking about calm and peaceful and moving into the holiday season, um, the Hallmark Channel movies come to mind in which you have the family sitting around the dinner table, calm, peaceful, loving, giving thanks to God beforehand, hopefully still. And in those situations, being gentle, uh, being meek, being kind is easy. But imagine the call to be gentle, kind, and meek in the middle of warfare in the middle of battle, in the middle of bullets being fired and bombs going off. Two very different situations and two very different um, approaches uh, for being and, have, and the call to being gentle. Well, Paul had just sp- said to Timothy that he is, as the Lord's servant, not to be quarrelsome but kind to everyone in the end of chapter 2. He's to patiently endure evil correct his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And what Paul goes on now in these verses before us is as he opens up to Timothy what people will be like in the last days, he's teaching Timothy that this call to gentleness, to kindness, to patience will not be won around a hallmark dinner table, but one in the midst of a great battle. And one in which that 
Timothy himself is not strong enough in himself to carry out, but that he must trust in the Lord for such obedience to God in such times. And so to God's church, so to you sitting here in this chairs before God's word, the call to gentleness, kindness, to hold fast to the truth, to be faithful to the word of God that's been entrusted to, to you and to us as a body. We are not to carry those things out in times of peace, but in times of conflict. And Paul, again, is reminding us that as Timothy was to do so, so too the church today. And so I want to think about uh, two main points here. First, our context and then our command. Our context and then our command. Um, The context, as we'll first jump into here quickly, has to do with the last days, right? Um, What kind of atmosphere, what kind of environment do we live in today? Well, in some sense, we might say it's unique. In some sense, we might say that it is um, never before seen in the history of the world. But rather, Paul is reminding us that the same context that Timothy was to minister in is the same context that we exist in today. And we'll see this drawn out from verse 1. It says, understand this. So be mindful of this. Comprehend this. Have this as something that you think about and understand. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Now that raises the question, of course, what are the last days? It's become popular to simply think about the last days as a short period of time prior to Jesus Christ coming again. And in that interpretation, the last days are, for us, still future, most likely, unless Jesus comes back soon, which he very much might. But the last days in that interpretation are viewed as simply the days leading up to immediately preceding the return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to judge the living and the dead. But that does not seem to be the way in which Paul understands the last days. Rather, Paul seems to understand the last days as that period of time which was inaugurated with the first coming of Christ and will be consummated in the second coming of Christ. The last days are the period between Christ's two appearances, his first and his second that, it's, that it regards his coming again, or they conclude with, the coming, with his coming again, is seen throughout this letter. Uh, Paul has been speaking previously in chapter 1 about a certain day that is coming, a day that will close out the last days that we find ourselves in. Paul says this, for example, in chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day, what has been entrusted to me? That day being the appearance of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Likewise, in chapter, eight, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, Paul, speaking about Onesiphorus, who, he, um, who had blessed Paul and refreshed him while he was in prison, he says regarding Onesiphorus, May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And so that day that Paul is speaking about is the day of Christ's return, a day in which Christ will judge the world as a righteous judge. And again, in chapter 4, verse 8, he says that same thing. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 8, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, 
will award me on that day, and not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Right? So Paul sees in the last days culminating and ending with the return of Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, to award his people with a crown of righteousness and to judge those who have rebelled against him. But more than that, Paul also sees the beginning of the last days as having taken place when Christ first appeared. And this is what the prophets all looked forward to. These latter days that would be inaugurated when the Messiah, the Christ, appeared. Paul says this in chapter 1, verse 10. He says that um, what he's been preaching and what God had promised us long ago in the ages uh, before time began of salvation in Jesus Christ, he goes on to say that this has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. There's been a new power, a new way of life that has been broken into the present order. And so Paul sees the last days as the days between Christ's first coming, his first appearance, and his second appearance. The last days are then a period in which Timothy lived in and a period in which we live in today as well. To see this just from the prophets so we understand this, because this is an important phrase that's used throughout Paul's writings in the New Testament, and often there's a lot of confusion around it. So I want us to be very clear on what the last days are. So we see this also, the same interpretation in the prophets, that the last days will commence when the Messiah appears. Notice what Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. He says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. A, a supernatural image here of the rivers not flowing down the mountains, but actually flowing up the mountains um, to the Lord's dwelling, the nations coming in. And we might ask, well, when did the latter days that this is looking forward to begin? When did this prophecy of Isaiah commence? Well, notice what takes place in Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 17. Acts 2, of course, is uh, recording the day of Pentecost, when God had, um, uh, when Christ himself had sent the Spirit to dwell in his church, and the people there, gathered from all the nations, begin hearing the gospel in their own tongue, in their own language. Notice what it says, as Isaiah himself looked, to, looked forward to the nations beginning to flow to the mountain of God. Notice what we read in Acts 2, verses 5 and following. It says, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? 
But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Peter's going to explain what's taking place. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You see, what Paul is telling us and Peter is telling us is that the last days that the prophets looked forward to commenced with the appearance of the Christ, of the Messiah. And that in his resurrection, he brought life and immortality to light, even in these last days. And that these days that began with his coming will conclude with his coming again. These are the last days that Peter, uh, rather that Paul is writing to Timothy about. And one, therefore, in which not only Timothy lived in and was called to be faithful in, but ones in which we live in as well and are called to be faithful in until the day of Christ's return. Now, Paul says that within these last days, notice, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. That these last days are not defined by ease and they're not defined by peace, but rather by an antithesis that runs between the world on the one hand, the world of flesh and the devil on the one hand, and the church on the other. And these days will exert themselves. Um, Notice there will come. uh, The language there is one of exerting a sort of pressure, and as Paul shows us, a kind of moral pressure to live and conform to a certain pattern of living that is defined by love of self and love of pleasure. This is the last days in which the church is called to live in, to hold fast to God's word in, to preach the gospel in, and to live godly lives in, right? These are the kind of last days. And Paul wants the church, just like he wanted Timothy, so he wants us today, to be aware of our circumstances, to be aware of our surroundings, right? It's a very popular phrase in New York City, um, you know, being aware of your surroundings. If you see something, say something, right? Like, notice things. Don't just be unaware of your surroundings. Well, Paul is saying the same thing to the church. Don't be unaware of, of, of the influences and the powers and the forces at work in which you live, in which Messiah's Reformed Fellowship exists and all of God's people in these last days. Within these, t- these days will come seasons or times of difficulty in which the church will be pressed, in which the church will be forced um, and will come under the force of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You might say, well, where is this pressure coming from? Well, notice the previous chapter at the end of it, Paul reveals to us that in these last days, Satan himself is at work, ensnaring people and bringing them to do and capturing them to do his will. Notice chapter 2, verse 26. Regarding these false teachers, he says, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Right? Paul is saying that within these last days, the devil himself is operative. The devil himself is ensnaring people to do his will. And what is his will? But to destroy God's church. With all of his force, with all of his might, he opposes the truth of God because he is, by his own name, 
a liar. And he, by his own name, he, he hates the truth. It's interesting that in this list of vices that Paul gives, there's 19 of them, um, though the, the count for some reason changes between different commentators. But you have about 19 um, vices that are listed here, beginning with um, lovers of self, lovers of money, and so on. But it's interesting that the very center, if you were to find the, the middle um, vice that is listed here, it is the word um, slanderous, which is in Greek the word diabolos, which is the same word as used for devil previously, right? It's showing the work of Satan, that these people are captured to do his will. And at the heart of their lives, they are lovers of self and lovers of pleasure. But at the center of it, that's sort of influencing it all, is that they hate the truth. They, they are slanderous. They not only um, reject the truth, but they actively oppose the truth in slander. They are like their father, the devil. And, P and Paul is reminding us that in the last days, there will become times of difficulty because such people will exert pressure and attack the church, whether through deceits or overt persecution, in order that the gospel and the light that has been brought to light by, by the resurrection of Christ might be extinguished. You see, in these last days, you have both the appearance of Christ who brought life and immortality to light, and you have Satan and his um, host working to quench and put out that light. Right? That's the basic divide. That's the basic antithesis that we find ourselves in. And so be aware of these things. You see something, say something in the context of the church. There is this basic desire for the gospel light in which there is life and immortality to be extinguished. And therefore, these times of difficulty are defined for God's people, not just in times of economic difficulty or just times in which there are political difficulties or whatever else it might be, but times of difficulty that are defined by the gospel, whether we hold to it or we attack it. That's the, 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 the point of contention. That's the point of issue. That's where the battle is ultimately fought. So Paul, again, we're, we're still thinking about our context, right? In the last days, there will come, exerting themselves, times of difficulty. And this is the kind of moral pressure that we are to operate in. And this moral pressure is inescapable. And if we are not consciously and purposefully um, countering it and going, uh, going in a counterway from it in Christ, then we will be thrown about by it. Um, we will succumb to the very vices that Paul is speaking about here. I had mentioned this illustration in the previous sermon, so let me just use it again for those who didn't hear. But we might think about this um, pressure that the last days exerts as a kind of gravity. And you might imagine yourself uh, flying in an airplane, right? And if you were to step outside of that plane, the force of gravity is too strong for you. You could exert yourself, you know, Danny could you know, you know, fight as strong as he can, and yet you're going down. Um, there, there is no fighting gravity in yourself. And so Paul is also saying in these last days, there's going to be a moral force so great the, day, the days in which we in, there is a force so great that you cannot resist it on your own and in your own strength. 
And yet, Paul has been holding out to Timothy that reality, not that he might despair, and not that we might despair, but that we would indeed despair of ourselves and of our own strength, and we would instead look to the Savior that God has given us, that we would live according to his word and by his spirit as Christ enables us to resist. Christ enables us to live different lives as new creations, as light in these last days. The strength comes not from ourselves to battle Satan, to not be ensnared by him, to do his will, but instead the strength comes from Christ who indeed is far greater, far stronger than any force of Satan, any power of, this, of these last days in which we find ourselves in. And so this is the context. And, and as we said before, this moral pressure looks, at, according to this list that Paul gives, um, which we won't look into every single one, but let, let's just hear this list again and pause here and there to notice the kind of moral pressure and force of these last days. It says in verse 2, people will be lovers of self. And it's important to notice at least the beginning of this list, lovers of self, and then the end of this list. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And everything else falls in between. Lovers of money, right? Money is what makes things move. It's what gets things done. And so often the church can be allured by that as well, right? If we just had money. Now, if we had money, we'd go buy a new building, that would be really nice, and I would take that. But the love of money, in the sense that the love of being able to do our will, can be dangerous, because then it's saying, where is our trust in the Lord? Right? To have a fat bank account and to, is to forget that God is the one who provides for us. And so we do want to be wise and careful when we think about these things. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. We talked about that in the previous sermon. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. We said that was kind of the heartbeat of this list as they do the will of their father, the devil, who himself is a hater of the truth and a slanderer of it. Without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. These are the, the things that are, that are around us. This is the pressure that we're pressed into, that we're called to resist in these last days. And also not to use such pressure as an excuse not to be gentle, not to be kind, and not to be patient. Paul is saying in the midst of this, in the midst of such people, in the midst of such difficulty, pursue gentleness, kindness, patience. Why? Because it shows to, to the world that... Your Savior is one who is far greater and transcends the power structures and the ways of this world. God does not need to meet force with force, power with power. He is the creator. We are the creature. That's why God often will overturn the works of the proud and the arrogant, not with the things that they invest in and they value, but things that they devalue and things that they think is weak. God says, I'll use those to overturn the powerful. And so too God's church to be called gentle and kind and meek in the midst of such a world might seem like, well, we're just throwing ourselves under the bus. We're just sheep led to the slaughter. Well, that's how the Bible does describe us in some places. And instead, though, we do and live such a life because we're entrusting ourselves to the power of God. We believe his word. We believe his gospel. And Christ indeed is our king. 
He is protecting us. He is governing us by his word and his spirit, as we're going to see. And so these are the vices that define. He goes on to say in verse 5 that such people have the appearance of godliness. And so um, they're not necessarily um, apart from the church, but they've um, infiltrated the church. They have an appearance of godliness, but deny its power. And this is a very crucial theme to Paul's writing to Timothy. Not to go by appearances. Right? Paul intentionally draws Timothy's eyes and our eyes to his chains. We see Paul as one at present writing this letter chained. And yet Paul is saying, don't go by appearances. Because though I'm chained, the gospel is being accomplished and I am Christ's prisoner here. And so too, such people on the, on the opposite side, the foil to that is they might have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. It's, they may be those who are unwilling to suffer and endure for the sake of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. The power of God that is exemplified in Paul's life in which he was willing to endure and suffer for the sake of the gospel. Such power was far from these people. They, yes, they went about religious activities, but they, they did not have that core, that heart, to true religion of loving God more than anything and the glory of Christ more than anything, even their own lives. Rather, they were like the list describes them, lovers of self, lovers of pleasure. When hardship came, they, 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 they wormed their way out of persecution. Whereas Paul, and as Paul calls Timothy in the church, is to endure all things. Because as he said, if we endure with him, we will reign with him. As he said in chapter 2, it is resurrection living for God's people today, being willing to die, being willing to be persecuted, being willing to undergo such things and not to avoid them for the sake of the gospel. Think of the Pharisees, right? You want to talk about the perfect prime example of those who had the appearance of godliness but denied its power. For the Pharisees, you, they looked at them as very religious people. And in many ways, they kept even the law of God. But they did so for personal gain. They did so for the benefits that it brought to themselves and what it brought them in this life rather than what it would bring them in the life to come. That Those are such people who have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. And Paul says then to the church that this is um, our context. He gives further examples before we get to the two commands that he gives us as we think about this context. He gives examples to flesh out this context for us. He says um, in verse 6, For among them, out of this group of people, there are those who creep into households, capture weak women, burdened with sin, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. And there's a lot of debate what exactly Paul has in mind here. Why does he single out this example? Um, On the one hand, you might see here a sort of recapitulation or a repeating of the garden, right? As Satan himself targeted Eve, the woman, um, to tempt her and lead her astray. We're not exactly sure what this context is. Timothy probably was much more aware of what was being said here. Um, But we do see them coming to such women burdened with sins, having a sense of guilt. And if somebody's has, if anyone has a sense of guilt, right, it's easy to manipulate. It's easy to get them under your control. They're led astray by various passions and they're always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Um, There is a constant desire to hear a new thing but never to arrive, right? The idea of being settled in something. 
um, being founded upon something. Whereas the church, all of us are called to arrive at the truth, to stay there and to camp out there for our whole lives, to grow, to grow roots there in the truth, not to be constantly looking for a new thing. The truth has been revealed. The gospel has been made known. The good news is proclaimed. And in that, we find truth. In that, we find light. More than that, right, Paul says not only this particular example of the context of the last days that will take place, and Timothy must um, oppose, but also he gives an Old, uh, an Old Testament example, sort of. Notice what he says in verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as, that w- um, as was that of those two men. Now, Janus and Jambres, you can read the Old Testament ten times over. You won't find their names listed there. Um, this was actually names that came from Jewish tradition. So Paul's not necessarily saying that this is exactly the case of what happened, but he's drawing from Jewish tradition that spoke of Janus and Jambres as magicians in Pharaoh's court. You might remember when Moses appeared before Pharaoh, um, Moses performed signs and miracles in front of Pharaoh, his staff turning into a serpent and so on. And it's told in Jewish tradition that Janus and Jambres were, uh, were magicians in Pharaoh's court who realized that they could not overcome the power that Moses had from the one true and living God. And so they cloaked themselves in, um, in, uh, um, by, by agreeing and, and pretending to be converts to Israel, right? Remember when Israel left Egypt, they went with a mixed multitude. Egyptians went with them as they left. And so it's told in Jewish tradition that Janus and Jambres, um, cloaked in their deceits, right, go with the people. Uh, they follow and they leave in the Exodus. And while in the wilderness, they begin to lead God's people astray. It's told in Jewish tradition they were the ones who tempted Israel uh, to build a golden calf while Moses was up on the mountain. But eventually these men were exposed as they were leading God's people away from the truth within the, their own camp cloaked in a sort of religiosity and faithfulness, but ultimately being servants of the devil himself, slanderers of the truth. And these men within the Jewish tradition were exposed. They were caught, and their folly was made plain to all. And so Paul is saying such men um, are examples um, of, of others who will come into God's covenant community. For them, it was the nation of Israel. Today, it is the church. And they will seek to lead God's people astray. Thus, in the last days, it's not just a matter of what's out there, but also what may creep in. And the church, then, is to be on guard against all of such things as we exist, as we operate, as we seek to be faithful in the last days. Now, with that context being mine, Paul gives Timothy, and then by extension to us, two commands. Two commands for us for these last days. The first comes back in at the end of verse 5. Paul says simply, avoid such people. Avoid such people. Now, the main idea that Paul is conveying here, at times it is simply to physically avoid them. Uh, Don't go into their path. Don't meet with them. But the main idea really is to purposefully avoid associating yourself with them. Remember the Bible, bad company corrupts good character, right? Who who you're associating with, who you define yourself with and by. 
um, the group that you would identify yourself with. Paul is saying, do not identify yourself with such people. Do not um, associate yourself with such people. Such people will, will lead you astray in these last days. As that moral or immoral pressure is exerted in these last days to follow them, know that if you do so, you will be drawn along the currents with them. Like a powerful riptide will be brought with them in their evil ways, opposing God and doing the work of the devil. A reminder to us that the Christian life in these last days is not a lazy river tour, right? You think about, the, you know, you're on vacation, you sit on these little rivers and they sit in these comfy little floating devices or whatever they're called and it just kind of takes you along. And it brings you to glory. Well, that's not the Christian life in these last days. It's not a lazy river. It's a torrent in which we are called to go in the opposite direction of. And Paul is saying the first thing to do is to avoid such people. Don't be caught up in that current. It doesn't mean we hide ourselves away from the world. And it doesn't mean that we um, are sort of a cloister mentality to the church. Um, no, here we are in the midst of New York City. We're called to live as God's people, salt and light. But may we not identify ourselves, associate ourselves, see ourselves in the movement that is all around us and of the people that are defined by these last days. May that not be true of us. Instead, we are called, as um, Paul's going to go on to say in the second command, to follow. Avoid such people, but then Paul says, in verse 10, to Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching and my conduct. Now, before we open up this commandment, the question might be, and we've sort of touched on it already, but where does such strength come from to go in the opposite direction from which a torrent, a raging river, is, is trying to bring me? What strength do I have to swim upstream in the last days? And that strength comes from none other than Jesus Christ. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, the kind of life that Paul is calling us to, one that opposes such immoral force as in the last days, is defined by Paul as a godly life. This is a resurrection life, a new life that's only found in Jesus Christ, and that life is in him. So Paul is saying that the strength to go against the moral current of this of these last days is only found in Jesus Christ and therefore you draw strength to do so by union with Jesus Christ and in union with Jesus Christ as you have believed upon him and have been bound to him by faith he then protects empowers and governs you by his word and by his spirit it's why Paul has been so adamant that Timothy hold fast to the word of truth that's been delivered. It's the gospel. It is the power of God. Christ governs us by this word. Again, chapter 1 verse 10 says that um, what God has promised us, salvation in Christ, has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Death as that which defines the last days and the way of living in it, such has been abolished, the strength of it is broken, and now a new life and of immortality has been brought to light through the gospel, through the word, through the truth. It's this word then that is a great force and power 
a supernatural strength in the Christian life. And not only God's word, but then also his spirit. Chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says to Timothy, By the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So in union with Christ, by his word and spirit, we then are called to avoid such things, for such things have been abolished in his death and resurrection. And we are then called to follow, as Timothy was to follow, the apostolic witness, the word of God as recorded for us now um, here in the scriptures, to avoid and to follow. And notice what it says in the ways in which uh, Timothy was to follow Paul. Follow in the sense of now associating himself with Paul, now identifying himself with the way of Paul, no longer with the ways of this world. You have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim of life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. These are all good things um, that Timothy um, exemplified as he followed Paul. It begins with his teaching, as Paul himself began by proclaiming the gospel, and Timothy hearing that gospel and being changed by it, transformed and converted, to now follow after Paul. Paul, of course, being one who is following after Christ himself. His teaching, his conduct, a walk of life that's selfless, um, humble, giving himself to God's cause, uh, not for personal gain, but for the benefit of, church, of, of his people. Paul's purpose, as Paul himself showed himself as one who had a goal, who had an aim, who, 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 who um, shot for something. It, Paul himself, because of that purpose, could be one who would be stoned within a city, almost to the point of death, cast out, but then go back to that city because God called him there. Paul had a purpose, and Timothy saw that. Paul's faith as he had trust in God. His long-suffering as he had patience with respect to other people. Love with affection toward God and to other men, even his enemies. Endurance as he had not only patience towards other people, but also the circumstances in which he found himself. Such things Timothy follows. Such things we are called to follow as well. And not only those things, but also verse 11. My persecutions and sufferings had happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. These are the cities that Paul visited on his first missionary journey where Timothy met Paul. And in fact, Timothy's first encounter with Paul was one who had been dragged out of the city because they thought him to be dead. This is the first picture that Timothy had of Paul. After hearing and preach the gospel, he sees him dragged out of the city as if he were dead. And yet the gospel changed Timothy because he knew Paul brought the truth. He knew that Paul brought a gospel, a message of good news, of life and immortality. So that Paul was able, by the power of God, to submit himself to death because he knew that such death um, brought about and executed by, on him by the world would not be the final word of his life. He would be delivered by God into his heavenly kingdom, if need be. Such power Paul, Timothy saw. And Paul is reminding Timothy that you saw this, and by God's grace, you followed after me. You, you identified yourself with this way of life, a godly life in Christ Jesus. And so Paul calls the church to such things. And he says and gives this great comfort, yet from all of them, the Lord rescued me. Timothy is given great courage that though God, um, though they endure persecutions, 
God will rescue his people in this life or in the next, right? Paul could say here that God rescued him from all of these things. And you can read of Paul's sufferings, for example, in 2 Corinthians 11, um, a list of the things that Paul endured that God brought him out of. And yet Paul also recognizes that as he writes this letter, what awaits him now is likely not a rescue in this life. Rather, what awaits Paul as he writes this letter is actually death on account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But notice what he says. Chapter 4, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Right? This is a resurrection mindset. As Christ himself was delivered to death, so God raised him to a heavenly kingdom. And so Paul may be given over to death, and yet God will raise him to a heavenly kingdom. And God's church may be given over to death, over to persecution. But God will deliver his people. And so it's a great comfort for us then to endure. Because Paul goes on to say, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, Paul doesn't specify what this persecution is exactly, but I think that's part of his genius in writing. Yes, we often might think of persecution as physical, right? Um, hunted down for the gospel of Jesus Christ, killed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We might think of our brothers and sisters in Pakistan or elsewhere throughout the world who may endure, may in, in fact face such persecution. But, God, but such persecution can also be um, the kind of persecution we feel living within the last days. And you might say, well, I don't really think I'm undergoing persecution. I don't. Well, why then are we hesitant at times to speak about Jesus Christ to other people? Why do we feel embarrassed at times? Why do we feel shy about speaking about Jesus Christ? Because there is a kind of pressure around us not to. And which means there's a pressure around us that is against Christ, that we live in and we operate in. The fact that speaking about Christ requires courage and strength in this life means that we are indeed around a kind of soft persecution. And yet uh, the same holds for us to be brave in this world because the Lord will indeed rescue us from whatever situation, living for Christ, living a godly life in him, might bring us. And Paul is saying, do not think then that living a godly life will simply lead to ease in this world. In fact, and Paul is saying, as the Christians live, as we show kindness and gentleness and patience, as we proclaim Christ and him crucified to the world, as the gospel goes out, it's not that things get better, but that evil people go on from bad to worse. While e verse 13, while evil people, the people marked by the last days, and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. As God hands these people over, like in Romans 1, to what they want, right? They're given over to more sin. They're given over uh, to, more, to worse sin against God. He gives them what they ultimately desire. So that this world goes from bad to to worse. The last days are ones marked in which suffering, seasons of suffering come, and the, and, the, and the latter is always worse than the first. And these last days are days in which the gospel indeed goes out. God's church will not um, fail. And yet it is a day 
that culminates these last days that move towards a day of great tribulation and persecution for God's people. It ends in a day that Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians and elsewhere as a man of lawlessness coming and deceiving God's church and God's people and bringing about great persecution. These are what define the last days. But God's promise stands. Christ will come. He will deliver and rescue his people. And he will overturn all the great hosts and hordes of the evil one. Christ will overturn in a moment. In the flash of lightning, Christ will come. Again, he will appear. And his reign and his kingdom will cease to be opposed. And he will act as the righteous judge over all bringing justice to his people, judgment to the world that has opposed him. And therefore, our hope is not found in this world getting better. We do pray. We don't look for things to get worse. But our hope is not found in this world at present, in these last days. It's not where our hope is found. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ, in his heavenly kingdom today. Right? That's where Paul's hope was. Right? Paul's mind was not looking forward to things getting better in the last days. In the days between Christ's first and second coming, instead, Paul's hope was fixed on, the heaven, in, on his heavenly kingdom. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Out of, into. Paul's mind was what, Paul's hope was set in the heavenly kingdom because that is where Christ is. And that is the kingdom that is eternal. And so, brothers and sisters, as we conclude here, you live in the last days. That's the fact of the matter. That's why the church is the church militant. But our militancy is not one that operates like the world, but one that operates in love and gentleness and kindness and patience as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, as you live in these last days, if you endure, you will reign with Christ. And therefore, let us avoid, not associate with the ways of this world. Let's not identify ourselves with its currents, but instead let us go contrary to the currents of this world. Let us swim upstream in Christ by his power, led by his word and his spirit, as we too, with Paul and all the saints who have gone before us, have our eyes fixed, not upon this world, but upon the heavenly kingdom, that we might glorify our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will again appear. And may we then be those who love his appearance. Amen. Amen. Our heavenly Father, Lord, in these last days, it's, it's difficult for your church, and um, at times there are seasons that are very overwhelming. And yet, Father, uh, we ask that you would give us strength as we look to your Son, the one raised from the dead, the one who is our head, who leads us and governs us and empowers us by his word and spirit. Father, may we then keep in step with his spirit. May we hold fast to his gospel. And may we also then be brave and courageous in this world as we live for him, And also may our eyes and our hope be set not upon this world and in these last days of brighter days, but rather instead our hope might be set upon Christ in his heavenly kingdom. We look forward to his return and we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.